So I think on the exhibition side, there's an understanding from, you know, that colleagues on the studio side are naturally nervous about running these kind of events when they have a, a new release and, and in some cases a very new release out in, into the market. So, you know, lessons learned from last year were that new releases undoubtedly benefited from being part of National Cinema Day. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition, joined here today by Russ Fisher of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. Russ, hi, it's been a while. Yeah, hey, how's it going? Nice to talk to you. Good to be back. What have you caught over this summer? Yeah, it's been a minute. You know, the last month was crazy. So like I really wanted to go see Turtles and I never managed to. So maybe the last two things I saw were Barbie and Oppenheimer. I did Oppenheimer about a month into its run and saw it, you know, on a Saturday night, a 6 or 7 p.m. screening, completely sold out. And it was just remarkable. I know we've talked about this movie a lot over the past couple of months. Everybody has talked about it and Barbie a lot. But it was still remarkable to be in a Saturday night, sold out, screening. It was super pleasant to see a movie like that where the audience was completely wrapped and into it and in a theater where the air conditioning was not working. And so it was Ooh. insanely hot. It just like almost, I was like, is this a thematic effect? You know, is I mean, this for a movie that <laughs> takes place in New Mexico for a lot of it, it kind of sounds like 4DX. I it, guess, yeah, it was a little in, bit in like a that. Good way. Yeah, the, the sweat on my back was very real. Still a great movie. Good experience. Yeah, I'm hoping to go see Haunting in Venice. We'll see if I can manage to get out this week. We'll speak about what news there is in a bit before we get to our feature segment. Box Office Pro editorial director Daniel Luria piping in from the past as he's on paternity leave now, uh, speaking with Phil Clapp, head of the UK Cinema Association, and Brian Bronlick, head of NATO Cinema Foundation, on the second annual National Cinema Day. And uh, yeah, Russ, speaking of Oppenheimer and the news, not a ton going on, like I said, but we have uh, Universal being the second studio of 2023 to reach the $4 billion mark globally. Part of that is Oppenheimer has officially passed Bohemian Rhapsody to be the highest grossing biopic of all time. It's good news. Biopics, always popular with producers and studios, probably good, like consistent long tail earners. Both of those films, I mean, more so Oppenheimer, but Bohemian Rhapsody 2, I feel like, definitely benefited from a freemium footprint. I know that uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was one of the first titles, I believe, at least here in the domestic market, where Screen X really just really popped. It really worked well in that format. That's right. That's right. So I do, this This seems like an, an opportune place for me to drop a little factoid that I've been chewing on. Thinking about PLF thinking about how PLF surcharges have driven box office and have buoyed box office to a certain degree all year and will probably continue to do so into the future. I was reading this book, The Speed of Sound, which is one of the couple of big books about the transition from silent movies to sound. And in it, it talks about Don Juan, which was the Warner Brothers movie where they really debuted Vitagraph, their, you know, their big sync sound thing, notably opened before the jazz singer was, you know, jazz singers given the kind of first talky thing. But this was, you know. Like their beta test. It was their beta test, more or less. You know, primarily only really open in a couple of theaters because not many theaters had 
that sound sync technology enabled, which was literally just records that played along with the movie. The thing that's interesting to me is when that movie, when Don Juan opened in the, the flagship Warner Brothers Theater in New York, the top level ticket was $3. In 1926, Whoa. it was $3. That's $50 in 2023 terms. And then when the movie premiered at the Egyptian in Los Angeles, the ticket price was five fifty. It's a like a ninety-five dollar ticket in nineteen twenty-six. All right. So I mean, this is a premium surcharge. Just the conversations about pricing, and, and that's nothing new. You <laughs> see why I'm thinking about sun. this exactly. Yeah. And I think that the movie ran for like nine months in New York at that Warner Theater. And over that nine month run, I think that the top ticket price was two dollars, so it was less. But it's still like a thirty five dollar ticket. And it did. It only ran for three weeks in L.A. at the Egyptian, and I don't know. I don't have any data about how much the tickets were for the remainder of that run. Like that premiere night was, uh, you know, you're there with movie stars and stuff. And who knows how many regular people actually even went. But, you know, still like by that pricing scheme, it's like, wow, okay. Even taking, you know, current IMAX, other PLF prices into account, like movies, still very affordable. And uh, that was just a fun thing to read. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, things like the, the Taylor Swift concert film coming out, a lot of events cinema are going to have kind of a base price that's higher than the normal addition to the premium formats. $50, still very expensive. But the Taylor Swift thing is, is like, okay, you're going to pay just under $20. You're going to pay nineteen eighty nine plus a service fee or whatever. She could have charged three figures and it probably would. I mean, I don't know if it would be breaking the records that it's breaking, but it, it's Taylor Swift. <laughs> I mean, so. it being Taylor Swift, 1989 is a, is an obvious ticket price and a good choice for her. It's cute. I get it. And obviously that movie is going to be one of the biggest movies of the year. It's going to top out as probably the biggest independent release of 2023. I think the Taylor Swift movie is, is a great thing. I'm glad it's happening. I hope that those screenings are fun for fans. I hope that people feel like they can get up and maybe not behave exactly like they're at a movie because it's not exactly a movie. But, so. uh, but shake it off a little bit, right? Yes, yeah, you know. There we go. That's one of the few song titles I know of hers, and it just <laughs> happened to be very appropriate. <laughs> so we have a, a few weeks to go before uh, Taylor Swift comes to completely dominate the box office. In the meantime, we had a, a pretty quiet week. Actually, we don't know at this point, as we're recording on uh, Monday early afternoon, what the top grossing movie of the weekend was because The Nun 2 in its second week and A Haunting in Venice in its first week are only 1.5% apart, according to, to estimates. So I'm at this, we can't even say I don't think either one of them is technically ahead at, at this point until the Monday actuals come in. It's tied essentially at uh, 14.7 million. Did you have a chance to, to see either of these films for us? I have not, sadly. No. I mean, I'm happy to see The Nun 2 holding. Uh, you know, it's a consistent thing that we've seen with horror performing. It's or, a better hold than the first film, which is yeah good to see. I mean, Haunting in Venice too, that debuted, well, According to the estimates, fourteen point five million for uh, a global total of thirty seven point two million. I mean, that's one that, based on the promo, it, it looked like horror. That you definitely get the sense of like, oh, okay, the marketing is is very geared towards 
horror is is been a hot genre uh, at the cinema for for years now. It's you know September. It's time for horror at the movie theaters. I'm gonna bring in our editor Chad here from behind the curtain, Oz style. Mm-hmm. You were able to catch a screening of The Haunting of Venice. Yeah, I caught a press screening about a week ago, and you know I feel like Brano's finally been able to step outside of the shadow of previous adaptations. Uh, film adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. And unlike unlike those previous two installments, he's also kind of moved away from the big over-the-top sweeping CGI train shots and the crocodiles in the Nile. And he makes good use of the Palazzo as a really gothic interior. So I enjoyed it. I thought it was the best entry in the franchise so far. Yeah, you know, I had a good time with Murder on the Orient Express. Death on the Nile was kind of one of those I don't really need it sort of experiences. But like you're saying, you know, the aesthetic and the approach to Haunting in Venice appeals to me. I think adapting a book that has not been adapted many, many times, as, as Chad says, is a great idea. And I, you know, while I haven't seen it, word of mouth has been generally very good. And I'm kind of impressed with how much people are talking about it, how positively they're talking about it. And that makes me wonder what the second week hold is going to be like. You know, are we going to see more people show up because in this case, case, I think word of mouth can help a lot. And so maybe that combined with the fact that it is a relatively slow period, you know, your other big release is going to be what expendables. And that's, Mm. you know, the haunting in Venice and expendables audience, not a huge crossover audience there. (laughs) So, you know, maybe there's people who I think are primed to see the Brana movie that didn't go see it this week, but who will respond to positive word of mouth. I think one important thing to mention about it too, is that unlike the straight horror that you're seeing in The Nun 2 or around the corner, The Exorcist Believer, this has that little bit of spooky season vibe without having to to see a lot of gore or straight horror. So I think that appeals to a certain section of audiences. Yeah. I I mean, I think think that yeah, I think that's a very good point to make. You know, my mom is not going to go see The Nun 2, but she would probably really enjoy A Haunting in Venice and be like, oh, this is a fun kind of scary movie. But as someone who doesn't watch horror, you know, that would probably appeal. We'll see what the second weekend holds uh, look like. Check back in uh, next Thursday when we'll have those numbers and we'll finally know which earned more money this past weekend, The Nun 2 or Haunting in Venice. Also out in cinemas over this past weekend, we had the first of a kind of three-part release of Dumb Money from Sony. It opened in eight theaters across six major markets this weekend for a total of 217000 It's going to expand this weekend, then go fully wide on the 29th before Taylor Swift comes along and just Hoovers up every seat in every movie theater. But before that, Russ, as you mentioned, we have from Lionsgate, I mean, Expendables 4, but it's done in that style where, like, it's the four instead of the, I don't know, Expendables. <laughs> it just, as an editor, proofreader, I can't, I, I break out in hives. But. <laughs> But we do have a prediction for that opening of 13 to 18 million, topping out at a predicted 31 to 45 million, which would 
put it right in line with the third one. We haven't seen the franchise uh, reach the $100 million mark for the first one. It seems like the theatrical release for Expendables 4 is really just kind of a lead in marketing to whatever long tail life it might have on other media in broadcast and streaming. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, We'll see how it goes. We're looking at another probably quiet week next week, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I I feel like this time of year is always kind of, we need a little bit of time of the mental recovery, I guess, before we get into the real meat of Halloween season, award season, Oscar season, and now Taylor Swift season too. So We also have coming up the theatrical, the remastered uh, Stop Making Sense, which I hope people actually go to see because it's just such a wonderful concert movie. It's kind of neat that we've got like that back to back with the Taylor Swift film. Well, that just broke a big record at TIFF, right? Of like the highest grossing IMAX concert film. Or Yeah, because they did that preview event where they kind of live, you know, live streamed the conversation by the, you know, the reunited band, reunited on stage, you know, famously years of acrimony between Tina Weymouth and and. David Byrne and a lot of those, a lot of those people not talking for many years. So I think that held a lot of appeal. That was a big draw. So we'll see what happens with the movie in a more general release. That was uh, the highest grossing IMAX live event of all time. A24 is putting it out exclusively on IMAX this coming weekend. And then in, in non-IMAX screenings the next weekend after that, September 29th. So Russ, thanks for joining us today. Chad, thanks for coming in with the pinch hit. You're the only one who, uh, who who saw one of the newly released movies this past weekend. I went to a Mets game and it was disappointing. You had a primo classic Mets experience. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thanks you both for joining us. And when we are back, we will be hearing from Danny Luria in conversation with Phil Clapp of the UKCA and NATO and the Cinema Foundation's Brian Bronlick giving a recap of the performance of National Cinema Day's second year. Be right back. And we're back here on the Box Office Podcast with Brian Bronlick, the executive director of the Cinema Foundation. Brian, welcome. Am I mistaken? This is your first appearance on our podcast. I can't believe it's taken this long to get to you. Well, happy to be here, Daniel, and uh, to talk to you guys today. And uh, yes, it is my first, first time appearing on your podcast. Well, we're looking forward to, to getting into this conversation because we're coming off of the second edition of National Cinema Day. I was about to call it annual edition of National Cinema Day. There's no promises, but looking at the success that the concept has had, I hope that I will be saying that soon in the coming years. But uh, let's get started with an overview of what the Cinema Foundation is and what it does. For our listeners that might not be completely up to date on what the history of the Cinema Foundation is, can you give us a quick overview of the organization and some of your activities? Yeah, so the the Cinema Foundation is a nonprofit foundation off of the arm of National Association of Theater Owners. And we are here as an all-body industry group to advance movie going. You know, unlike NATO that can only represent movie theater owners, the Cinema Foundation is an all-stakeholder group. So we have exhibition on our board, we have vendors, we have studio partners, we have creative partners. 
everyone that cares about the theatrical experience and promoting movie going and investment in movie going, that's what the foundation is here to do. And, you know, our crown jewel, I guess, that we're going to talk about today is National Cinema Day. And it really is an all industry effort to put on a day like this and to, you know, get with our partners and figure out what is the best route moving forward. You you, you started off by saying, I hope this is an annual event. Uh, we hope so too. And, you know, we're still figuring out for especially the U.S. here, what is the right day? What is the right format? What is the right, you know, is should it be multiple days like it is in other countries? Should it be multiple times a year? I think those questions are still to be had, but yeah, we're here to do all of that wonderful stuff. Well, I think it's so important that, that you bring up the fact that the Cinema Foundation differs from the National Association of Theater Owners because NATO is there primarily, as its name suggests, as a trade group representing the interests of movie theater owners and operators. But the industry itself around theatrical exhibition, as we learned during the pandemic, encompasses so many other stakeholders. You've got vendors, you've got publications like our own, completely focused on, on this industry. You've got studios and theatrical divisions of studios. There are so many different touch points beyond the movie theater itself that are interested in the success of this industry. And that's what the Cinema Foundation is here to promote and to protect and to innovate with. And as you mentioned, the crown jewel of these efforts right now is the National Cinema Day Initiative. Now, this is an initiative that for the first time ever was launched last year in uh, September of 2022. Could you share with us some of those initial outcomes? Because it was very much a, let's say, I don't want to say a soft launch, but it was definitely something to test out, a pilot program to see how viable it would be. Absolutely. You know, at the foundation, we still have a little bit of PTSD from la the first year because it sort of came on us pretty quickly, right? Like we only had, you know, about six weeks to put together this holiday in a you know relatively small budget. But we knew that we needed to try this day. You know, we were coming off the pandemic. We wanted people to remember what it was like to be back in theaters. And, you know, in six weeks, we put together the impossible and we got everyone on board, you know, some easier than others, some partners easier than others, right? As you mentioned, it, it is a soft pilot that we were trying. So, you know, of course, people were going to be scared. And what are the results? Well, that day, Saturday, September 3rd, we saw 8.1 million moviegoers come to the theater and experience movies that had been in the marketplace for quite a bit of time. And it was such a successful day that we were like, oh my gosh, people love going to the movies, right? People love being together. And it was, it was a moment where we were like, well, what's next? And, you know, as we moved into this year, we wanted to try things, try new things. If you look around the world, you know, there are, as I mentioned, there are various models of what National Cinema Day looks like. So we didn't want to repeat a Saturday of Labor Day weekend. So we tried the Sunday before Labor Day weekend. Sunday is typically a slower day than Saturday. And the results were incredible. You know, we're, we were up 5%. We're at 8.5 million moviegoers attending our theaters that day. And, and really the focus was on families. Families, you know, last year we saw those family titles over-indexing and we went to our studio partners and we're like, you need to make sure that there's family content for our theaters. 
And there was, I mean, you know, the bring back of Super Mario, the Little Mermaid, Haunted Mansion, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Jaws in 3D, or, or not Jaws. Well, that, was well, that should year. be that uh, should be a family title anyway, in my opinion. <laughs> if, if it isn't yet, Jurassic it will Park be in the next generation. Yeah, Jurassic Park, come on. It's it's Spielberg. Yeah. It's, it's spectacle. You know, you need those like early movie going experiences to know not to go Correct. into the beach running. That's fine. It's a children's movie. I'm into it. You know, in over 3,000 locations and 30,000 screens participated both years. Like, we know that there's something special. And we know that as we look towards the future, what can National Cinema Day be? I mean, I think here at the foundation, we would love to see National Cinema Day turn into a mini Comic-Con across the country where you never know who's showing up or what sneak peek studios are going to drop in your local theater. Like, that could be really cool. You know, I think we're still in the test pilot phase of what what it can look like. And we're just really proud of the work that we did this year. And we're, we're so thankful for everyone that came out and supported it and thankful to all of our partners. You know, we couldn't have done it with exhibition alone, which is again, to the, the first point, you know, we had amazing partners with our studio friends, with our vendors, with all the formats. I mean, there were a lot of people who, who just tried 40X for the first time or IMAX or Dolby or you name it. It's super cool. And at an embeddable price point, it's so important to promote not only movie going itself, but a lot of these new technologies that come at a higher price point that might be difficult for a family of four or six to show up and get that premium experience. It's great. It's very democratic and accessible. Uh, it's one of the reasons I love that initiative. And you just mentioned something a second ago, which was the buy-in of your studio partners. And I think that's another big reason of how the Cinema Foundation differs slightly from NATO, right? In the fact that obviously there has to be a very clear division line between the interest of exhibition and the interest of studios. You have to sort of politically approach that with a, with a delicate touch. But in there were a lot of missed opportunities between collaborations, between exhibition and distribution. And that's exactly the role that Cinema Foundation is playing here. This year, at this National Cinema Day, you had one studio come out with a new title, with a new release. That's something that I didn't think we'd get to see early on. Sony going out with a release like Gran Turismo during the National Cinema Day weekend, they had a great result on that Sunday, ended up being the top of the box office, even with that lower ticket price. Could you speak about that role that studios play in that Cinema Foundation ecosystem and that increased participation and trust you're having from these partners? Yeah, look, you know, we were super thrilled to not just have, you know, Gran Turismo as a, as a new release that weekend, but, you know, some of our indie partners, Golda was a new release that weekend as well. And so just showing that studios are understanding the power of this day and what it can mean for return audiences, right? And not just those new releases like Gran Turismo, but, you know, the tried and true of this past summer, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer and Turtles and Haunted Mansion, you, you name it, you know, all of our studio partners had something really for everyone. And I think what I like to say about National Cinema Day is the day is not just the day itself, right? Yes, 8.5 million people went to the cinema on that day, and that's fantastic. But what are the ripple effects of bringing those families, bringing those new generations of moviegoers into our theaters, experiencing all these incredible trailers for future films, and they're like, hey, I need to come back and see that on the big screen because it's not the same as sitting in my living room or 
watching it on my iPhone in bed. Like it's not the same thing. And we're just really grateful that those opportunities are there for this day. And I think as we did last year, we will go back to all of our partners, you know, it's still, we're still gathering some of the data that we had out there and say, how did this day work for you? And what can we do better next year? And I think we did that the first year and we got to this place this year and it can only go up from here in my belief. Yeah, there's a lot of potential for growth here, which is what I really like about initiatives like this one. And of course, we talk about initiatives of bringing the industry together, bringing stakeholders together and talking about the future of the industry. You've got an event specially tuned for that reason uh, alone, the Fall Summit that is usually held in Los Angeles. That's coming up in early October, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it's coming up. And then this is the second year that the Cinema Foundation will take over its programming on the educational day, which is the last day. And, and we've really, you know, we have a number of pillars at the foundation, you know, looking into data and research and cinema careers and movie going promotion. And there's something really that we like to highlight about what is great about the future of exhibition, right? Like, how can we use the data and research that we're doing from National Cinema Day or that we did on the State of the Industry Report to help theaters and the whole ecosystem of, you know, the movie-going experience work for everyone? And so we're really excited seeing everyone. It's, it's a great time and it's a busy time for the foundation, but we're excited to see everyone there. And that was Brian Bromlick from NATO Cinema Foundation speaking about the National Cinema Day initiative that they launched along with the upcoming edition of the Fall Summit. And coming up next, talking about the UK's edition of National Cinema Day is the UK Cinema Association's Phil Clapp joining us here once again on the Box Office Podcast. And here we are with Phil Clapp from the UK Cinema Association. Phil, great to have you back here on the podcast. Delighted to be here. So we are here talking about National Cinema Day. We heard a little bit from the Cinema Foundation a second ago to learn how the US fared with their own edition of this concept. The UK has had its own edition, uh, let's say, a sibling edition of Cinema Day because it's inspired by, maybe it's not directly tied to. So could you walk us through what that entailed this year? When was it? What was the deal that you guys offered to moviegoers? Yeah, sure. So many of the kind of headlines will be broadly familiar to colleagues in the US and indeed colleagues in, in a number of other European territories which have run or are due to run similar events. I think it's a recognition that there is always naturally a little bit of a tail off at the end of the summer in terms of the strength of the slate. And also, you know, we're still on a a kind of road to recovery, I think it's fair to say, post, we're still talking about the pandemic, post pandemic. So it's really an opportunity to use price, I think, as a key lever to say thank you to those people who've been back and encourage those people who've not maybe to give it a try. So Broadly, the approach we took this year was the same as the approach we took last year. And last year was the first time we'd done this in 30-something years in the UK, which was to offer everyone a, a flat price. In the UK, it was it was £3, uh, which I think is probably about $4, $4 plus, and involve as broad a range of our members, UKCA members as possible. So that's all of the major circuits and then a very large number of the smaller regional chains and then single site venues and you know it was a fairly 
straightforward offer, you know, £3 or screenings all day. And this year, I think, you know, having proved the concept last year, we got about another 100 or so sites involved this year. So we are up to 630 plus sites, which is around probably 85% of the UK sector. But in it, we involved all of the major circuits. It's a much larger percentage of the cinema going market. And we, you know, inevitably, these things are the work of many hands. And, you know, we were very grateful for the support of distribution colleagues, both in working with us to find a date that worked for everyone, but also in terms of ensuring that they were bringing forward not just the recent and the current films, and those are very well received, but also some of the some of the classics and maybe even kind of recent classics that people may not have seen on the big screen before. Now, last year's uh, edition of this event was a success. It was a pilot program. You were testing it out. There was enough data there to confirm that this should happen again in 2023. Can you go into the dynamics of selecting that date? Which day of the week it was? What factors came in on deciding when this would happen? Because like in the United States, this happens in a sort of blitz marketing strategy, right? You usually have like a week drawn up of letting the public know, and then you go all in on that one date. What went into this year's event? So I think on the exhibition side, there's an understanding from, you know, that colleagues on the studio side are naturally nervous about, you know, running these kind of events when they have a a new release and and in some cases a very new release out into the market. So, you know, lessons learned from last year were that new releases undoubtedly benefited from being part of National Cinema Day. But we still work very closely, particularly with colleagues at Sony who had Equalizer 3 out that day, 2nd of September in the UK and colleagues at Lionsgate who had Cobweb to make sure that they were confident that their films will get a boost from this. I think we've probably set a template, a positive template for how we work in the future. In our marketing for National Cinema Day, we made sure that those titles were, to coin a phrase, the hero titles. So we led a lot of our marketing with those films. A, because they were something new and shiny for customers, but also in recognition that, you know, colleagues at Sony and Lionsgate had gone out on a, on a limb for us. I think the approach we follow this year is the same as last year and the same as a number of other territories. And in recognizing that what we don't want to do is to encourage people to not pay full price when they should be. So that window of marketing basically began the Monday before the weekend of National Cinema Day. It also means that we can, what will always be, but particularly at the moment, slightly limited resources, we can focus those as effectively as possible using, you know, broadcast media, radio. I did a whole round of regional radio stations, almost kind of speed dating with them one morning uh, with my little list of cinemas in their region. So I sounded like I was, you know, reasonably current. But it is it is very much, I think, that those are the elements which I think we probably think are not the positives, but the, le- the positive lessons learned. I think we probably do need to agree, at least internally, on a date earlier than we did. I mean, I think last year... For a September, an early September date, we probably agreed the beginning of July. This time we were a little better and we agreed, you know, kind of the end of May, beginning of June. But we just need to give everyone a bit. We need to give the machine a bit more space to breathe, I think. But, you know, in terms of the numbers, last year, 1.44 million admissions on National Cinema Day. You know, to give your listeners a sense, that's got around three times the usual business on that day pre-COVID, you know, so we're not even comparing with the, you know, whatever might be depressed numbers. This year, we went from 1.44 million to 1.56 million. But I would caveat that by saying it was across a fairly significant additional more sites and screens. 
but it's still, you know, kind of, I, I last year I, I didn't have an opportunity. This year I was on, on the front line at a Cineworld Cinema in West London and just the sheer, well, mayhem is one word, but the buzz and excitement of people. I'd assume that this notion of people literally staying the day in the cinema and seeing three or four films, I just thought that was our kind of marketing buzz. It genuinely happened. You know, I was seeing people literally just stocking themselves back up on, you know, soft drinks and popcorn and then going in to see X, Y, and Z. And the other thing was that, you know, families would turn up and then they would split up into different groups. So, you know, there was a family of four, mother, father, young children, mother and young children went to see Elemental, dad went to see the Meg 2. And then they met up at the end. And then I think they went to see Haunted Mansion together. It was, you know, that kind of logistical exercise. People are getting smart about this, actually. People are getting smart about how to maximize their spend and maximize their time when they're in the And we have to lean in on those opportunities as an industry. And I'm glad you mentioned that you were in the front lines because I saw this on LinkedIn, a picture of Phil Clapp, the head of the UK Cinema Association, in a Cineworld uniform. Can you go into what happened there? Frontlines, you're not kidding here. You actually worked the floors. You worked the concession stands. You were there on this day at this site in West London. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't kind of overplay it. I was, there, <laughs> I was there for six hours. I was there from midday till 6 p.m. I, my sense is the evening stretch was probably the most challenging for a whole variety of reasons. But yeah, so what happened was last year I was away or was out of London for National Cinema Day, so I, so I couldn't do it. And this year I thought, and, and it's probably something which is I should have done a long, long time ago because I've not had a huge amount of exposure to the front line. So I, I approached Cineworld, who have one of my nearest cinemas, and said, would you want another pair of hands? And they almost literally bit my hand off. But what I did say to them, which is why I ended up doing it, is, is don't get me involved in anything that involves money and don't get me involved in anything which I need to learn systems because I don't want to be an impediment. I don't want to people's way. So the first thing I did was I went in and what in the old school would have been kind of ticket tear, but actually now it's ticket check with a little kind of QR code gun. I did that. And again, I'd not, I'd not really thought this through. So I'd not realized that quite often, you know, those families of five or six people, they'd all booked individually. So that, and it's all kind of QR code. So they all kind of basically threw their phone at me. I was desperately trying to click them all, but I do two of the six and then they'd be running off to the screen. So I'd have to run after them. It was that kind of thing. But it was a real, it was a real useful education for me. And then I did that for about 90 minutes. And then I did ask to do this. I did clean up. And that again was a, a real eye opener in terms of the pressure, you know, particularly on those kind of days that everyone's under to get the screen clean, get out, get audiences in. But also, and I kind of knew how messy people are. I mean, just, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's an know, important the, experience. The things, the things I've seen. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. And that's an open invitation, if not a challenge to our colleagues in this industry, vendors, even our friends over at National Association of Theater Owners, reach out to your local cinemas. If once this happens next year, I would love to see even our colleagues in the studios. I would love to see that. A lot of us going in there, offering our time to help out, you know, our floor staff in these cinemas that really make this industry run on a day-to-day, really an hour-to-hour basis, I think, as you learned, Phil, at this year's event. I want to ask you about some of the themes, some of the trends in the data that we've seen this year, because in the U.S., we saw that family titles performed, once again, exceptionally well. We saw that last year, even titles that had come out earlier in the summer come back, some re-releases. What were some of the main uh, trends data-wise at National Cinema Day in the UK this year? 
so we're what are we a, a couple of weeks after so we're still kind of working our way through the kind of the, the key data and, and we'll continue to track and we did this last year the kind of return of cohorts of people the extent to which it you know not just got them into the cinema on the day but is encouraging them to come back i mean and i'm sure this was true in a number of other territories you know unavoidably barbie and oppenheimer you know were amongst the films that dominated equalizer as i say equalizer three which was released on that that weekend did did very very well teenage mutant ninja turtles you know some of the some of the more family stuff like elemental and haunted mansion the make two also did very well but we also and i'm not sure how how widespread this was we that weekend also coincidentally coincided with the re-release of the original and i think we all agree best jurassic park so that was probably, you know, last year we had Jaws and E.T. were the two big kind of classic films which featured in the mix. This year, Jurassic Park didn't quite knock them out of the park, but was, again, the big feature. But you're right, and, and just from my entirely anecdotal experience of being at the cinema on the day, but looking at numbers, it's a family day out. I mean, you understand, as although cinema operas try to keep prices as reasonable as possible, if you've got a family of two or three kids and you're going to the cinema, you know, it is an expense. And so... The ability to do that and worry less about the ticket price and hopefully load more onto the popcorn and the uh, the sodas is undoubtedly a positive. Uh, it's, it's great to see that. And it's great to see those numbers and the fact that our studio colleagues are seeing from the data itself that even new releases can really benefit from this bump. We had a title like Gran Turismo in North America come out that weekend. You mentioned Equalizer 3, among other titles in the UK. And when we go to those re-releases, I'm going to make you feel old uh, for a second, Phil. I know I do this quite a bit when we socialize, but I'm going to do this right now. 30th anniversary for the Jurassic Park re-release. In 1993, when Jurassic yeah. Park came out, you know what was having a 30-year anniversary from Russia with Love. So the way we looked back on yeah, From yeah, Russia with Love in 1993, that's the way we're looking back now on something like Jurassic Park, it seems like yesterday. Yeah, I, I mentioned that I, I did a number of kind of local radio station things. And, you know, they follow a familiar format in terms of tell us about the thing, but a couple of them asked me of my, my first cinema experience. and. I was very, that feeling old thing, I was very conscious that as I started talking about the fact my first cinema experience was, was seeing the Aristocats, <laughs> most, a number of them, a num, literally a number of the people I saw did not have a clue what no, I was talking about. No, that's a classic. This was, you know, Come on, of, that's a classic. No, it is. It, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I think, you know, who's to say that in 30 years' time, someone doing my job won't be talking about the 30th anniversary of the Meg 2? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I have no doubt that the Meg 2 is going to have a long, long shelf life in all our memories. So let's look forward to the impact of, of days like this, because this is not as simple as a fire sale, right? A one-day sale just to get as many people through the door. There's a long-term strategy behind eventizing moments like this on the calendar. What's on your mind in setting up the UK's National Cinema Day in this regard? So when we ran the event last year, we tracked both the number of people coming on the day who were first-time returners. And that was around 45 to 50% of people. So that's first-time returners since May 21, which is when cinemas in the UK were allowed to uh, reopen fully following the pandemic. This time round, as you'd imagine, that percentage is smaller. We think it's around 20 to 25%, which is still probably surprisingly high, considering you know wh how far we are now with that in the rearview mirror. But we are doing what we did last time, which is doing some longitudinal tracking of 
cohorts of customers where we have the, you know, kind of the CRM data for them, which tends to be for the larger operators, but not exclusively. You know, last time we found it, it did, you know, National Cinema, they actually say, you know, it would have limited value if it was a fire sale, if we were just getting people in purely to respond to the price signals. But last year, I think we probably saw around kind of 40, 45% of those people who went for National Cinema Day had returned within three months to see to that same site to see another film. We're going to do a similar sort of tracking this year, you know, and, and I think what we need to do is start to one, you know, when we have one cohort from one year and one cohort from the next, set them alongside each other and try and work out what the differentiators are and, and what we've done to get the people back and what we've done or what we've not done to get the people not back, etc. So it becomes much more of a, a kind of long-term impact, enjoyable and impactful though the day itself is. Well, that's why we have these, uh, these special days on the calendar to make sure that we can track audiences, we can see what is important to them. Maybe it's price sensitivity, maybe it's coming in for specific genre, number of frequency. Phil, thank you so much for joining us once again here on the Box Office Podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. And thank you once again to Phil Clapp of the UKCA and Brian Bronlock of NATO's Cinema Foundation for their insights in this episode. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Tune in next Thursday for a new episode.